Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Kevin Navratel. I'm the Democracy Commitment Coordinator on campus, and I want to thank all of you for being here today. Uh, today's event is in commemoration of Illinois' bicentennial. If you didn't know, on December 3rd of this year, we're going to be so celebrating 200 years as a state. And in light of that, we thought it would be a great opportunity to bring one of our elected officials, uh, Senator Bill Cunningham, to our campus today to talk to some about some of the challenges that our state faces, some of the strengths of our state, uh, talk about some of his experience that he's had working um, down in Springfield. Uh, so just a little bit about uh, Senator Cunningham. He has represented the 18th district of Marine in the uh, 18th district in the Illinois Senate for the past five years. If you don't know, the 18th district has uh, several communities in Marine Valley, including Palos, Worth, and Orland. He serves on several committees, including the vice chair of the Education, Higher Education Committee, and he is the chair of the Telecommunications and Information Technology Committee. He has also served as a member of the Illinois House of Representatives from 2011 to 2013, and before that, for about 20 years, he worked in the Cook County Sheriff's Office. So please join me in welcoming Senator Bill Cunningham to our campus today. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks. Can you guys hear me okay? Uh, thanks for coming, everyone. I'm sorry a little bit late, like you guys probably do frequently. I was battling the parking lot for a while, looking for a, uh, for a spot. So I'm sorry I'm a little bit late. Uh, thanks for coming out. It was a really uh, good crowd. Uh, as I mentioned, I'll, I'll go over a little bit about um, what I do, what my uh, job's like, what the state of the state is, and then I, I'd like to you know, turn it over to questions. And anytime I speak to groups like this, especially students, I like for the discussion to be driven by questions as, as much as possible. Um, so I, I'm a state senator. Uh, what does that mean? There's uh, 59 state senators in Illinois. Uh, each district has about uh, 216,000 residents in it. So uh, my district, we're in, we're in my district right now, Moraine Valley. Uh, most of the Moraine Valley attendance area is in my district. Um, my district goes from the Will Cook uh, boundary in the west, uh, goes as far north as I have a little section of a couple uh, blocks in Willow Springs, as far south as 171st Street and uh, Orland Hills. And then I go as far east as about 83rd in Ashland in the city. So I have uh, Chicago neighborhoods like Beverly, Morgan Park, Auburn, Gresham, Mount Greenwood in my district. Suburbs like all the Palaces, Oaklawn, Evergreen Park, Orland Park, Worth, Chicago Ridge, uh, many other uh, surrounding suburbs in my district. Like I said, about 216,000 uh, people. And it's my job to represent you in Springfield. Um, one of the things, you know, just sort of putting things, uh, you know, in a statewide perspective here, given that it's our uh, 200th anniversary, uh, Illinois is a really big state. I, I always knew that, uh, but didn't fully realize it until I became a member of the General Assembly. And as was mentioned in my introduction, I was in, this, uh, I was in the House of Representatives for two years, and now I've been in the Senate for about five. Uh, it really dawns on you how big of a state it is when your seatmate, my seatmate in the Senate for several years, has such a deep southern accent that I sometimes had a hard time understanding him. He represented the southern tip of the state. Uh, you can drive in Illinois, if you drive from the Wisconsin border to the southern tip of the state, which, uh, a town called Cairo, uh, that's about a 420-mile drive, okay? That's the same distance you would drive if you went from midtown Manhattan in New York to North Carolina. So think about the amount of real estate you're covering. That's a, a, a lot of ground. It's also uh, physically a lot of ground. It's also a lot of ground on the ideological spectrum. People in Manhattan don't think about politics and government the same way people in North rural North Carolina do. Now, imagine putting that whole swath of America in one state, and, and that's what you have in Illinois, a very big, very diverse state. Uh, people whose attitudes about government and politics and culture differ a lot. So that's something we deal with in, in, in the General Assembly down in Springfield on a daily basis. And it can lead to a lot of problems. Uh, we've seen an increase in regionalism in the state over the, the last few years. 
There's a lot of reasons for that, and, and we can get into it. Uh, all that stuff was made all the worse in recent years over the, the budget battle that uh, I think you're, you're all familiar with that we, we basically just pulled out of the, in the last year. Something that did real damage uh, to our state, including people like yourself, people uh, who uh, are involved in higher education. Of, of all the areas of our budget that were damaged uh, by the standoff, higher education was arguably hurt the most. For uh, a couple of years in a row, Colleges and universities did not get their usual disbursement um, from, from the state government. So I considered my task in Springfield uh, to be driven by uh, an effort to sort of break down these ideological boundaries that are in place and these, these regional boundaries that have come up. And I've tried to do that in a couple different ways. For instance, I serve on, one of the committees I serve on is the Agriculture Committee. Now, you know, there's a couple of working farms in, in my district, but not many. It's, I'm one of the few Chicago members. In fact, I chaired it for a year when the, the chairman stepped down. I was the, uh, the first Chicago-based legislator to ever chair the Illinois Senate Agriculture Committee. Um, so that's one of the ways I go to Springfield and try to learn about problems and issues that are really important in other parts of the state, but maybe not so important to those of us who live around here. Um, I think that makes me a better legislator. I think when legislators do that, it helps make us a better state. And I think that's the only way we sort of uh, break down some of these regional and, and political differences uh, that we've seen in the state the last couple of years. Because you know, the, the, um, the problems that causes, the um, the logjam and government and budget crisis really hurts the state. You know, we've seen uh, outflow of population. I think that has been contributed, uh, that th this uh, deadlock in government has contributed to. We've seen our economy, our economic growth lag behind uh, the national average and uh, government not doing its role to, to address that. So uh, that's always been uh, my commitment to, while I've been in Springfield, is to try to, to work past some of those divisions uh, that exist. And we've had some successes. I mean, we've, we went two and a half years with this budget stalemate. That was broken up last summer. This last spring, we agreed on a budget for the first time in four years, a bipartisan budget. So I think that was probably, that probably happened because the governor was running for re-election and didn't want to run for re-election, having served four years without uh, having a budget in place. But whatever the reason, it was a good thing, and it's helped put uh, the state, I think, back on a road to recovery. Um, one of the things that I would hope all of you would be interested in, I would invite you to get involved, you know, um, to in any different ways. Obviously, start off by voting, but also by getting involved in your community. You know, I'll tell you something. So, you know, one of the things day in and day out that's really important to me and to any legislator if they want to get reelected is that you are concentrated on constituent services. And, you know, what are constituent services? It's looking out for the people you represent, making sure if they're having problems cutting through red tape in some government agency that you help them do that. You know, um, that's you know, just, just one example of it. I try to do that by staying in touch with and being accessible to my constituents. I'm, in, I'm a full-time legislator, not all legislators are. I'm in my office or in Springfield every day or coming to uh, forums like this. Uh, one weekend every month, I hold with one of my state representatives a coffee and conversation where we just sit down for an hour or two at a Starbucks or a Dunkin' Donuts somewhere in the district and advertise it on social media and in the newspapers and invite people to come and see us. We do evening office hours. Later tonight, I'll be at the school district in Evergreen Park having a town hall meeting. I try to be accessible, try to find out what people are thinking about, and uh, make sure they're getting the government services that they pay for with their tax dollars, and making sure their views are represented in Springfield. So I'm very reactionary, as all politicians are, to what we hear from our constituents. And uh, you know, I'll give you an example. So especially when we're in session 
every morning, the first thing I do is log into my email and, and see what sort of emails I've received from my constituents the evening before. Sometimes if there's a big, important, controversial bill up, I could get 100 emails you know, overnight. And I'll look through them, and a lot of times they'll be you know, form letters that were organized by some group to uh, contact me about a certain issue. And I'll see they've come from all over the state, you know, Effingham, Elmhurst, Schaumburg, the north side of Chicago. I pay little attention when I get an email from someone who doesn't live in my district. But if I see that person lives in Palos Hills or in uh, Mount Greenwood or Evergreen Park, I pay attention because that person could fire me. They could vote against me. They can knock me out of office. That's the way uh, most elected officials react. The other thing is I look at is who's contacting me. And I, I'll tell you, just if you want to guess what age group I represent, I hear from the most. Anyone want to guess? If, if go by age group, the age group I hear from the most? Yes. Seniors. seniors. That's right. So uh, I hear from senior citizens about their property taxes, um, about their Medicaid and Medicare benefits. Some things, Medicare is a federal program, I, I have nothing to do with, but I, I hear about that. Um, I don't hear much from people around your age, and I'm not alone. You know, most, uh, most politicians would tell you that's the exact same phenomenon they deal with. So government is very responsive to the needs of senior citizens because senior citizens vote. We give them property tax exemptions. You know, we give them a break on their public transit costs. Uh, we're reacting to the people who contact us and the people that vote. Uh, young people are underrepresented in that regard. So, um, and you know, I, I would say that there's no accident that when there's a budget crisis, what's one of the first things that gets held, held up? MAP funding. Many people here, a school on, on a MAP grant? A big portion, about a third of the students here at Moraine Valley get MAP grants. So uh, that, that's not an accident that when, um, when there's a budget crunch and things are cut, that uh, items that benefit people around your age are the first to be frozen or the first to go. And that's because of a relative lack of engagement from younger people. So I would encourage you to, to help change that. Um, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, an old saying, and that applies to politics as much as it applies to anything else. Um, so that's a, a basic rundown. could certainly get into more details, but like I said, uh, I, I would like to keep this uh, driven by questions as much as possible. So open it up to anyone has any questions, thoughts, complaints? Yeah. Yes, sir. Okay, you asked what the most common problem that uh, I get contacted by. It's hard to say because it really varies, uh, you know, from time to time. Kind of depends what the hot issue is. You know, the thing that, you know, the media tends to be focused on, um, a bill that's up in Springfield, that, that will bring um, the most, you know, any given day, uh, the most uh, concern, complaints, contact from, uh, from constituents. But a consistent theme, I would say the thing that I hear about more than anything else is property taxes. Uh, if, I, if I go walking around as I do from time to time and knock on doors in my district and talk to people and ask them, you know, what's your biggest concern? They'll mention property taxes. Um, that, that is pretty consistent and, I, and I'm, I think most people in my position would tell you that. In Illinois, we have, um, uh, a, a, you know, people talk about tax, taxation and compare Illinois to other states. Illinois, relatively speaking, is actually a low-income tax state, uh, particularly if you compare Illinois to other big states like ours that are similar to ours. Our income tax is on the low end. A lot of people don't believe that. It happens to be true. Property taxes are on the high end. We have among the highest property taxes in the country, second highest to New Jersey by most uh, metrics I see. That is not uh, an accident. One of the reasons our property taxes are high is because our income taxes are relatively low. 
Most states, I'll give you a, an example of this, uh, one of the biggest uh, bins in our budget is education funding. In most states, the majority of funding that goes to school, to the average school district, comes from that state. You know, if you lived in New York and, or California and went to your local public school, most of the money, not all, there's federal sources, state sources, local sources, but in most places, the biggest chunk of money coming in to operate that school comes from state government. That is not the case in Illinois. It comes from your local government. Only about a third of funding at an average uh, Illinois public school district comes from the state. Um, most of it, depending on your district, if you're in a real poor district, you get more state money, uh, more federal money. If you're in a more affluent district, like uh, District 118, which is uh, the uh, elementary school district we're in right now, you've, uh, uh, most of the money comes from property taxes. Um, so they're, they're connected. Um, I think that's a bad system because uh, property taxes have very little to do with your, your ability to pay property taxes have, have very little to do with your income. I mean, obviously, if you make more money, odds are you're going to have a bigger house, a more valuable house, you're going to pay more property taxes. But, you know, there's not the exact correlation there with, with income. So we have a system here that puts a lot of pressure on middle class families to fund their public schools. Uh, that's why your property taxes are low and your income tax, or your property taxes are high and your uh, income taxes are relatively low in Illinois. And that's why I hear from the thing I hear the most from my constituents, the complaint I hear about the most is about the high level of property taxes. All right, so we have a question back here. Yes, sir. How many campaign meets do you do in a, a week? Campaign events, fundraisers? Okay, uh, he asked how, well, he was on the microphone, so you heard him. Um, so right now I'm kind of lucky. So I'm on the ballot in November, but I do not have an opponent. Uh, this is the first time I've run where no one filed to run against me. Um, I like to think it's because I'm doing a great job, but it just might be dumb luck, I, I don't know. Um, so that means I'm spending uh, less time than I would normally spend uh, raising money, for sure. Um, my, I, as I said, I'm a full-time legislator. Probably about a third of the members of the General Assembly in Springfield, maybe a little bit more, are full-time legislators. I do this, you know, 40, 50, 60 hours a week, no matter what, whether it's campaign time or not. I, I do, I, I speak to groups like this. I do some of those constituent outreach uh, programs I talked to you about. But, uh, that really hasn't changed much. Uh, what has changed without having an opponent is not having to raise money, and that allows me to concentrate uh, more on doing my job. When I, was in, when I was in the House, you know, you run every two years, and uh, one of the problems, and this is kind of unique to Illinois too, you know, we have a real early primary. Every year we have a primary in March. That's, that's unusual. That's really near the front end. Um, so when you're running in two-year terms, you're always running. It's always campaign season. Um, you get sworn in in January. By August, you have to get your petitions out on the street to appear on the ballot in the March primary. So you're never not running. You're never not raising money. Um, when I was running um, four years ago, I had an opponent. And I'm a Democrat, a Republican. So Governor Rauner gave him uh, like $150,000 in seed money. And he put out like a nine or 10 piece mail program blasting me. So that kicked me into overdrive. I had to raise money to counteract that. Um, I, you know, I think when uh, elected officials are busy raising money, that's probably a bad thing. We should be more, you know, we should concentrate more on doing forms like this and being responsive to constituent services and having to spend less time on raising money, but that's the reality of it. You know, if, if you want to get reelected, it, it's, unnecessary evil. Hi. Um, I was wondering where the funding for the MAP grants comes from. Okay. The funding from the MAP, MAP grant comes from the General Revenue Fund in the state. That's the main operating uh, fund that the state has. Uh, that is uh, compiled by the taxes you pay. If, if you work, the income taxes you pay on, uh, on your uh, that you see come out of your check uh, every week. The sales tax you pay when you buy something. You pay 6.25% uh, of uh, sales tax on most items that you buy. 
that goes into the general revenue fund. The general revenue fund then goes to MAP grants. General revenue fund this year is going to be about $38 billion. Um, the state raises about another $35 billion, give or take a billion, from other special funds. That might be, um, you know, if any of you are going to be teachers, the, uh, the fund you, you pay for your teacher's license goes into a special fund. Uh, that's plenished by a lot of fees. The motor fuel tax that you pay when you buy gas, that goes into a special fund. But most of the money goes into the general revenue fund. That's how we pay it out. When we had the budget stalemate, that money was, even though it was still being collected, you know, when we had the budget shut down, you were still paying taxes. Money was still coming in the state. And we were still spending money. We were spending money without a spending plan, which is never a good idea. Really blew up the number of, of bills we have and the, the state debt. Um, and it was spent based on court orders. So what happened during the, the budget stalemate is um, various legal groups went into court and asked for judicial orders to keep paying state employees, to keep funding programs for people with developmental disabilities. And the judges said, okay, and they handed those court orders and said, state Illinois, we don't care that you don't have a budget. You have to pay these bills. You have to keep funding these programs. And we did. But there was no lawsuit file, filed for MAP um, recipients. So that's why that wasn't funded. There was no lawsuit filed on behalf of higher education. So higher education didn't get funded. And it created a lot of damage to our higher education uh, community in the state. And I think it's going to take us a while to get out of it. How many of you guys, when you were in high school a couple of years ago, had guidance counselors tell you, you know, we said, oh, I want to study this, I want to study that. Any, I, I heard a lot of stories like this, so I'm anxious to hear if you guys heard this. Uh, but had guidance counselors tell me, oh, I don't know if you want to go to school in Illinois. You know, that, that college or that university might not offer that program because of the, the budget standoff. I mean, uh, my daughter uh, graduated from high school in the middle of this, and she was told that by some of our counselors. So that's helped uh, increase the number of uh, students that have left the state. And um, that's potentially really damaging long term uh, because it might not come back. Other questions? Yes, ma'am. Uh, you mentioned that this is a very lag behind in terms of Okay. Um, we have lag behind uh, economic growth in, in other states. We've, um, our unemployment rate is a little bit higher than the national average. Um, I think there's a, a couple of things that we can do about that. Um, one is um, we've gone um, 10 years in the state without doing a major uh, capital development plan where we invest in our roads, our rails, public, uh, public transportation, and building schools. Um, that, to me, would be give our, our economy a, a shot that it desperately needs, uh, would help increase the number of jobs. Um, that are available and would helping our transportation network in particular, which is a really important part uh, of the economy here in Illinois, I think would help speed up uh, the economy. That's something uh, that I think we need to do and I, I'm optimistic we will do um, early next year and, and I think that'll help. I think we also need to, you know, one of the things that's hurt the state, and you guys maybe have studied this in school and different classes, uh, is about some of the changes to our economy and um, how it's transformed our economy. It's created a lot of economic and uh, political anxiety in the country. Um, Illinois was very much sort of an old school economic state, an industrial state, um, an agricultural state. Those sectors of uh, the economy have been affected, mostly for the worse, more than others. So uh, we have to adapt. We have to incentivize the you know, technology. We have to realize the things that we have that are resources beneficial. We're in the middle of the country. That makes us a transportation hub. We need to take advantage of that. The warehousing and, and uh, you know, think about the way things have changed, how goods are delivered. You, know, you pull out your phone. You go on Amazon. You want something on your front door at the end of the day or the next day. We have to invest in roads, airports, in order 
to deliver those things. And if we can, our economy will grow with other natural growth sectors in the economy. Um, we haven't done a good enough job of that, and I think that's what we need to focus on. Yes, sir? The top three what? Okay, money sinks. Okay, it's, it's, it's a good question. So, you just repeat the question. Yeah, so he said, what are the uh, top three money sinks, which I assume you mean, what, what are we sp the th things we spend the most money on in the state? Okay. So the number one thing, when you, when you divide up the state of Illinois, the, the government budget, what we spend money on, the, remember I mentioned that $38 billion in general revenue funds, the biggest chunk goes to Medicaid. Okay? Do you guys know what Medicaid is? It's a government program to deliver health care to poor people and uh, care to people with developmental disabilities uh, and in some limited ways to senior citizens, okay? That's over $9 billion. That's grown really quick, uh, you know, at a, at a pretty rapid pace over the last uh, 10 or 15 years. We get some federal matching funds with that, um, but that is the single biggest trough uh, of the budget. Um, after that, it's pretty much a tie between uh, K through or pre-K through 12 education and paying off our pension debt. Those are the next uh, highest, you know, single items in the budget. They're, they're, they're both between like seven and eight billion dollars. Um, pension debt is a real problem in the state. It's, it's gobbling up a bigger and bigger chunk of our budget, and it's basically going to pay bills that the state didn't pay for years. Um, and unlike what you might read in, in, in the papers or see on the news, this is not a new problem. Illinois is underfunded. It's public employee pensions. That would include pensions for your instructors here at Moraine Valley. It would include K through 12 uh, teachers, guards that work in prisons, anyone who you know, works in state government. That, it, the state has underfunded that for literally 100 years. It's never made the full payments that were necessary to, dis, to sustain uh, those pension plans. Starting about 10 years ago, right when the recession hit, the state legally uh, started making what's called the actuarially required contribution to those funds. 20, you know, 15 years ago, well, there were some years the, the state would pay nothing into the funds, but maybe some years it'd pay one or two billion. Now we're paying eight billion dollars. So that's a big chunk of spending. It's money that can't be spent el elsewhere. And it's required the state income tax to be raised. Uh, seven or eight years ago, it was 3%. Went up to five for a while, then back down. Now it's at 4.95%. Uh, most of that increase is going to pay off that pension debt. So a big legacy problem um, that, as I said, is 100 years in the making, and unfortunately, we we're, have to pay those bills now. Any other questions? Is that what um, made it Illinois the most expensive state to live in? Well, Illinois is not the most expensive state to live in. It has the highest property tax. What are the highest property tax rates? I mean, if you look at cost of living, the other, you know, other bigger, you know, big states on the coast have an actual uh, higher cost of living. Now, having a high cost of living is not all bad. It's a sign of economic growth. You know, the highest cost of living in the country is in San Francisco. It's because the economy there has boomed, you know. You, you know, it's to the point where people are priced out. I was reading uh, something in a magazine about uh, Silicon Valley and talked about how, you know, it's gotten so expensive to live there that companies are having trouble hiring people. One of the things I read about is the San Francisco School District uh, contemplating buying a big apartment building in downtown San Francisco as a place for their teachers to live at reduced rate because they, they can't hire teachers because teachers cannot afford to live within an hour and a half drive of their schools because the economy and, and it, you know, the cost of living is so high in and around San Francisco. Um, so we do have a higher cost of living than you know, rural areas, than other Midwestern cities, but not as high as the cost of living on, on the coasts. 
Yes, ma'am. That affects higher ed because many, uh, you kind of alluded to this earlier, mm -hmm. many of our students are also leaving. That's right. So what is the state legislator doing to try to stem that um, out? Okay, there's, uh, it, it is true. Uh, we've had out-migration of people the last couple years. We've now, I mean, just to go back sort of a history lesson, Illinois has lost population to the rest of, relative to the rest of the country uh, since the end of World War II. Um, that's when we had our peak, if, you know, you study political history. That's when we had the most electoral college votes. Um, and that, the reason that's happened has a lot to do with air conditioning. I mean, people moved to the Sun Belt uh, starting in the late 40s and 50s because of air conditioning. So, and that's affected New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan. All the northern industrial states have lost population relative to the rest of the country ever since the end of World War II. We've seen that accelerate in recent years uh, in Illinois. Most of that population loss is not in the Chicago area. In fact, the Chicago area has seen its population go up. Most of the population loss in Illinois is downstate. So we used to, a lot of the sort of the mid-size um, uh, towns in Illinois, Rockford, Peoria, the, the, the the Quad Cities, Decatur, used to be in industrial centers where we, we built a, a, like things like tractors. Those jobs are gone. I mean, there's a fraction of them left. Um, that gets to the bigger economic changes. The other thing that has really changed Illinois' economy, and it's, it's overlooked in these bigger pic, pic, picture discussions about the sort of uh, hollowing out of the middle class, and that's automation. Okay, uh, our agriculture industry used to employ two or three times the amount of people it does now when you literally had to have farmhands, you know, harvesting crops. Now we have big combines that do it. I saw firsthand a couple weeks ago, I, uh, we had a, a hearing in Springfield and I took a field trip about an hour south of uh, Springfield to a coal mine. Uh, Illinois, believe it or not, for almost 100 years, was one of the largest coal-producing states in America, especially in the southern third of the state. A lot of coal mines. I went down a coal mine. It was one of the coolest things I've done since I've been a member of the General Assembly. But I saw this automation I'm talking about firsthand. I saw three guys operate this big piece of machinery, one guy working a joystick and two guys making sure he wasn't too close to the walls, go into the wall in the coal mine with this big grinding machine, grind coal off the wall into a bin, and another guy drove the bin away. Four guys doing what 40 years ago took probably 20 guys to do, okay? Um, so those kind of things have really hurt uh, the economy in Illinois um, and have caused people to leave. That's why population loss has mostly happened uh, downstate. Chicago has seen its population grow. The, the metropolitan area, the city itself uh, has shrunk, but the metropolitan area is going because Chicago has adapted to the economy. We have technology jobs, finance jobs, banking jobs, advertising, public relations, all those kind of things. So w we've seen growth there. So now the question is, what do we do about it? You know, what can we as policymakers do about it? I mentioned a, a capital program is one thing we can do about it. Uh, taking advantage of transportation. I, I think we should build a third airport in, in the south suburbs uh, for cargo to uh, take advantage of it. And if anyone's driven through Will County lately, you'll see this is already happening. There's a new warehouse goes up every other day. Uh, Amazon right now is the largest employer in Will County. They employ 4,000 people, I want to say. Five years ago, they didn't employ one person. Now they're the largest employer in that county because they've built four or five warehouses. We, that's one of the things we have to focus on. Water is a resource. Fresh water. When I was college too, when I was your age, I had a professor, I went to UIC, tell us that um, Illinois, Chicago region's access to fresh water is going to make us the Texas of the American economy in 20 or 30 years. Now he said that 30 years ago, so he's a little bit off in time. But that is a resource um, that I don't think we're taking proper advantage of. Uh, Foxconn, I don't know if you're familiar with this, they make flat TV screens. 
they just moved their uh, factory into southern Wisconsin because they need access to fresh water. That's something we need to do. I think we can lure companies that need fresh water um, with incentives. Basically tell them, we'll give you water free for five years, ten years. If you come here, set, you know, set up uh, roots here and hire a certain number of people. I think we can do those things and, and help grow our economy. We have to take advantage of our natural resources, our location in the, in the center of the country. Those are things I, I don't think we're doing and we need to do to keep people to stay here. The other thing is, like we talked about, to keep college students from leaving. Because if they leave, they might not come back. And I think we need to do that by lowering tuition. Uh, we've increased funding in Illinois. A lot of people don't believe this, but I, I met with this group of school superintendents the other day from my district. Uh, we've increased funding for K through 12 education over the last, in the middle of this budget crisis, the last four years, by a billion dollars. We have reduced direct aid to higher education. That has resulted in tuition increasing. We, when I went to college, so when I was a senior in high school, the decision between going to a community college or, or a state university and uh, an out-of-state uh, public university or a private university, it was all about tuition because it would cost you twice as much to, to leave the state or to go to a private school. That tuition gap has closed close to nothing. That's why we're losing students. The, the state does not give an, enough direct aid to, uh, to our colleges and universities. Part of that is the pension problem. We spend about a billion dollars a year making up for skipped payments to the to, uh, SERS, the uh, state university retirement system. That's the, the pension system for university and college employees. We were skipping that for years. So a lot of the money that used to go into classrooms and used to go to, to tuition reduction, we're now using to pay off pension debt. Um, so that's something that we need to address, and I think that will help staunch the tide of, of people uh, leaving the state. Well, I see uh, three hands will go here. Okay. And then I'll get to you in the red, sorry. Okay. Yes, just one quick question. Can you please just tell me and all of us what exactly happened this year? What exactly happened? When, how did we come to the point where, we, where MAP funding just stopped? Okay. Well, I, I kind of talked about that a little bit earlier um, in that um, MAP did not have the advocates. I think other, other spending items did. They also did not have um, any sort of legal grounds to go to school or at least or to go to court. At least no one tried that. I suggested to various people in the higher education piece that they should go to school on behalf of MAP recipients and say that MAP recipients were depending on that money uh, for their education and made um, economic, made financial decisions based on that, like went and took out loans and put themselves at financial risk because the state stopped spending, uh, funding MAP grants. Um, no one decided to take up that cause in court. If they did, maybe, I, I think they didn't because they thought they would lose, but if they did and they were successful, it could have forced the state into making um, MAP payments. Um, you know, but that's a side thing. We, you shouldn't have to go to court to get these things funded. Unfortunately, that was the only way people during the budget standoff did get a lot of things funded. So um, I think the way to make sure this doesn't happen again, that's probably what we should focus on, is getting involved in the kind of advocacy um, that I talked about. Groups of students, by the way, from Moraine Valley, came to Springfield and lobbied me and other uh, legislators. And when you, you know, look into the face of, of someone like yourself, maybe even some of you did this, I don't know, and you uh, hear their story and, and people tell you, like, listen, I, if I don't have this grant, I can't go to school. You know, if, if, if I can't go to school, I'm not going to get a job. And to see people and hear from people about their personal situation, that really breaks through with legislators. Otherwise, we're just looking at numbers and letters in a budget book or in a, in a chart. So I think that kind of advocacy by each and every one of you goes a long way. And I think that's a way to prevent that kind of problem in the future. Um, what type of tax contributions do major corporations that are in the area contribute mm -hmm. 
okay. to us. So we have a corporate tax rate you know, in, in the state of Illinois. It's a little bit higher than uh, the income tax rate. Um, a lot of corporations, though, don't pay that. They, they find a way to pass through their money and pay it like it's, it's personal income. Um, people have proposed addressing that. Um, the problem with uh, you know, changing that formula is you do run the risk of driving businesses out of the state. Um, so that, that's a potential problem. I think it's something that we have to be really careful about. We can make changes, though, to our tax code that I think will make it fair and will bring in more revenue to the state um, to address some of these budget shortfalls we talk about. And I think the best way to do that, and what I'm an advocate for, is uh, putting in place a progressive income tax in the state of Illinois, which would be just like the way we assess uh, taxes in the federal government just like the way they uh, assess taxes in almost all our neighboring states, and that is to have people with higher income pay a higher rate and people with lower income pay a lower rate. Right now, we have a flat tax in Illinois. Everybody pays 4.95% of their income into uh, in, to the state income tax. Uh, if you make $35,000 a year, that's what you pay. If you make $3.5 million a year, you pay the same rate. That's not the way the federal government does it. That's not the way they do it in Wisconsin or Iowa or a number of other states around us to have that graduation. That, I believe, will reduce the tax burden on poor people, on working class, middle class people, and raise the tax burden on wealthier people who can afford to pay it. Um, so I think that's probably the best way to address what I think we have right now is a fundamental unfairness in our taxes. That bleeds over into what we talked about earlier with property taxes. Because we, because we have a flat income tax, we don't generate enough revenue from that income tax. It makes us rely on property taxes. Property taxes are, uh, the, the burden for property taxes mostly falls on middle class families. Um, so we can, uh, we can relieve that pressure by shifting um, to a graduated income tax. So we have a very, it's very complicated. So you, your corporate taxes that you pay in Illinois are based on the profits you make in Illinois as a corporation. So that's what they, what they do. Um, so they, they pay it based on, you know, what they, what they make in the state. So, um, you know, I'll give you an example. Um, like Caterpillar still makes some uh, tractors here in Illinois. Um, if they sell it to an Illinois farmer, they pay taxes on the profit from that sale. If they sell it to a uh, farmer in China, they don't pay any taxes to the state on the profit on that sale. It's only on in-state, so, and that's pretty common. A lot, of, a lot of states do it that way. Yes? So you mentioned you went to UIC, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, how much did you spend on UIC, and who paid for it? So uh, my tuition was about $5,000 a year when I went there. I lived at home. I, I didn't stay down there. And I, I split it with my parents. Okay. We basically so did 50-50. I worked when I went to school and uh, um, shared the expense with my parents. In perspective, I currently go to UIC. Mm -hmm. My tuition is about 22000 right? Mm -hmm. um, how come kids with high-income families like me receive literally zero financial aid for the school, mm -hmm. even though it's 22000 yet my parents don't want to pay for it? Right. How come we don't have any options besides taking a loan right. for 22k and accumulating another 30k in debt? You raise that? a really good real good uh, point. This is a major problem. It's one of the reasons why we're talking about people have left the state. So we talked about MAP. MAP is a program for lower income students. Okay, uh, students that come from wealthy families that can afford to pay that. Families in the middle. There's no help. They make too much uh, income to qualify for MAP, but they don't make enough money to just you know, write checks. So what happens? You end up taking out loans, okay? And you end up carrying debt, um, which has a long-term negative effect on the economy. I, I was talking a few years ago to a real estate agent, 
sells a lot of houses in the southwest suburbs. He was telling me that he feels like the last uh, 10 to 15 years, he's lost an entire portion of, it, of his business on um, people in like their late 20s who can't afford, can't get a mortgage from a bank because they have uh, high college debt. You know, they're carrying 60, 70, 80 thousand dollars in loans, and they go to a, a bank to get a loan to buy a, you know, a starter house and here in Payless Hills, and the bank says, you already have a mortgage. You, you owe uh, uh, your $90,000 in college uh, loans. We're not giving you a mortgage. They end up living in an apartment or renting a house. That's not good for the economy. Home, home ownership is really important uh, aspect of economic growth, growth for the middle class. So this year, we formed in uh, Illinois a higher education working group, a bipartisan collection of legislators from all over the state to address this problem, okay? One of the first things we did is we set up a new grant, and I encourage you to look into this, called AIM High. The state is going to spend $25 million this year on this program. It's going to require each university to match, dollar for dollar, a scholarship program for students who come from families that have up to, I believe it's $165,000, $170,000 in income. So to address middle class families, a merit-based scholarship where if you get good grades or grant, not really a scholarship, it, that will re, uh, result directly in tuition reimbursement. So if UIC gives you a $2,000 grant, the state legislature will match it with another $2,000 and it will bring your tuition down $4,000 just to uh, uh, pull numbers out of a hat. Um, that to me is a small but important first step. I think we really need to focus on this. I think the, another thing we need to do, you know, we give out all kinds of tax breaks. Um, a new one that we gave out that we, we put in the, uh, in the budget, the education budget the year before last in order to get the governor to sign it was a, a scholarship program for, for private schools. It basically says people can make donations to uh, scholarship granting organizations and write that off on their taxes. And then that scholarship organization gives a grant for K through 12 students to go to a, a private school. Um, up to $75 million in tax credits are available for this. I'd rather see if we're, gonna, if we're going to you know, not collect $75 million in taxes because um, you know, for an education-related program, I'd rather that go to middle-class families for college tuition. Your parents should be able to write down a portion of the tuition they're paying to an Illinois college or university. Um, that not only will relieve the burden on the middle class, it'll make it easier for Illinois students to stay in, stay in the state. So I think that's the next thing we should do. But the only thing we need to do is increase direct aid to education, which, like I said, that's why tuition has gone up. The, the amount of direct aid coming from the state to colleges and universities has gone down. Um, and a lot of it, the diversion, the dollar for dollar diversion has gone to pay off the pension debt. That, that's the problem we have. And what I mentioned, I think are a couple of the ways we can address it, but a really good question. Senator, could you talk, uh, you mentioned about how the progressive income tax. Mm -hmm. So you're one member of, of 59. Could you speak a little bit about how, what would need to happen sure. it's for, good. for something like that yeah. to actually become a law? It's a really good question because, um, so it's very difficult to, to do this in Illinois because the flat tax is something that is written into the state constitution. Changing the state constitution is much, much more difficult than just passing a regular bill and changing the law, okay? If I want to change a law, if we want to, make this aim high college grant the law of Illinois. All we need are 60 votes in the House of Representatives, you know, a bare majority, uh, 30 votes in the Senate, and the governor's signature, and that becomes law. And that's what happened with that bill. To change the way we assess income taxes, we need to change the Constitution. In order to change the Constitution, the provision needs to pass both houses of the General Assembly, the House and the Senate, with three-fifths vote, and then the voters, and it goes on the ballot, and the voters have to affirm it uh, through a ballot referendum. That is very difficult to do. Um, there have been similar proposals in the past that have come up just short. 
For instance, a few years ago, there was a proposal to add a millionaire income tax surcharge that would increase, if you made more than a million dollars a year, would increase uh, your income tax by a couple percentage points, and all of it would go into education funding. Uh, that fell of two votes short, needs 67 three-fifths votes in the House, 67 votes instead of um, 60. It fell two, uh, two or three votes short in the uh, House of passing. So uh, that is a high, you know, when you put something in the Constitution, it's hard to change. Um, and that's where our tax rates are. So there's a lot of talk about uh, a progressive income tax in Illinois. There's probably even majority support for it. But to change the Constitution, you need supermajority support. And um, we'll see that's you know, the, one of the main issues, if you've been paying attention to the governor's race, that's one of the big issues in the race right now. And how the governor's race ends up will probably go a long way to determining uh, what happens on that issue. Other questions? Over here in the back. Can you tell me how much of the budget is spent on prisons in Illinois? And then the second part of that question, I've gone to a lot of small mm -hmm. towns in Illinois, and I realize that almost all of them have a prison in them. How much of the economy now is based on the prisons yeah. that are located there? Yeah, it's a, it, it's a really good question. It's, a, it's an interesting dynamic in Illinois politics, what you just mentioned. We spent about a billion dollars a year on uh, the prison uh, system uh, to maintain it. Um, I want to say there's 24, 23 um, Department of Corrections prisons in the state. That's up quite a bit from 20 years ago. Our population, our prison population, has actually trended downwards uh, the last uh, four or five years. There's been a lot of criminal justice reform measures. Decriminalization of marijuana uh, is one of them. Um, the, under this governor, the last two governors, they've loosened up some of the parole um, rules and regulations in a way that I think uh, is probably not real bright. But in any ways, that's helped contribute to a lowering of the inmate population in the state. One of the things that happens is uh, the question pointed out, you know, all these, none of these prisons are in the Chicago area. They're all downstate. And they become, in a small town, a prison that could employ a thousand people. That's probably on the high end, let's say five or six hundred people. That is the economic engine for that town, particularly because a lot of these other industries and the, uh, have gone away or the agriculture industry doesn't employ as many people as it used to. So a sort of a political culture develops around that prison and in sustaining that prison because you know, being a, a prison guard is a really tough job, but it pays well with benefits and everything else. And then there's an institution like that, a big government institution. It's not only the people who work at the prison that benefit from the prison being there. The entire town's economy benefits from it. The restaurants, obviously, you know, sell food to the prison guards and the doctors and the lawyers and the dentists and everyone else are there to sustain that part of the economy. So. There is a political push to maintain, you know, the level of prisons we have right now, and it sometimes makes for strange political bedfellows, okay? Because the culture, the political culture in these towns is mostly conservative-leaning uh, Republican. Um, but they're big union towns, and that they're, they're government union towns. Most of the people that, that, that work in the prisons are part of AFSCME, the biggest uh, government uh, 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 employees union. And they tend to be democratic. So it creates this, this sort of clash. Uh, and it's kind of an interesting political dynamic. We didn't get too deep into these things. But you know, Governor Rauner, uh, very much an anti-union uh, politician, uh, but one who's done well downstate. Um, because of the more conservative political culture there. Those two things are clashing right now in this election. And I think it's one of the reasons why, if you look at the, the public opinion polling, that uh, Governor Rauner is not doing very well, is because these, these worlds have sort of uh, have collided. It, it's an interesting sort of uh, political uh, subtext in the state. But that's, you, you describe, you know, uh, instead of 
a tractor factory or agriculture employing people in these, these, a lot of these towns, Menard, Illinois, places like that, the Pontiac, Illinois, the, the prison is really the economic engine in the town. Other questions? How often do you coordinate with your federal counterparts within Congress, like with spending in your district, um, transportation, like you touched on earlier? Because yeah. I know those are some uh, big issues within yeah, um, our area. Like directly person to person, uh, very little on that level of spending. That's mostly handled by bureaucrats in Springfield. Medicaid would be an example of a high level of um, interaction between federal and state. Um, transportation to spending on uh, roadways. Most of my interaction with our congressional delegation comes to basic, simple constituent services. We have someone who comes into uh, the office who um, got hurt at work, isn't getting paid. Uh, we make sure they get the, ben the unemployment benefits. Uh, maybe Social Security disability. We'll call the Congressman uh, Dan Lipinski's Congressman for most, but not all, of my district. We'll call his office, make sure that's coordinated. We have a lot of problems with railroads in my districts. That that's a federal regulatory problem, but a lot of my constituents will come to me about it. We go to the Congress, go to Congressman Lipinski, go to Senators Durbin or Duckworth, and on sort of a case-by-case case constituent service basis, work with uh, their office. For me personally, that, that's mostly where I interact with, with the feds. Just on that same topic of federalism, you mentioned how the number one uh, contact was about uh, property taxes. Mm -hmm. Could you speak a little bit about who sets property taxes? Sure. And yeah, it's, it's a, ma a lot of people um, don't really understand how this works. Uh, but property taxes are assessed and collected by local government agencies, okay? Um, when you pay, and you can look at your property tax bill, or if you live with your parents, at your parents' property tax bill, and they'll lay out all the local government agencies that tax your property. And, and any bill has anywhere between 10 or 12 um, uh, local government agencies. Moraine Valley is one, so it's very small, but they have a, a property tax levy. Um, your local town, if you live here in Palos Hills, there's a Palos Hills. Uh, line item on your property tax. There's a Cook County. There's a South Suburban Mosquito Abatement. There's a Water rec Reclamation District. By far and away, though, the biggest chunk of your property taxes goes to your local K through 12 school district. That can range, depending on where you live in the state, anywhere from just over 50% of your property tax bill to 80% of your property tax bill goes to your local school district. The state has nothing to do with the collection and spending of that money, not directly. Uh, some would argue correctly that we have contributed to that property tax bill increasing by not providing uh, enough uh, funding to local school districts for, for education. I'm sometimes amazed, um, uh, you know, how, I, I shouldn't, uh, how many uh, voters, residents don't understand that, you know, because, um, you know, it's, um, and that's why it's helpful to have people engaged and active and understanding the issues. But, you know, I, I would say a good percentage, not most, but a good percentage of my constituent, constituents when we talk about taxation don't realize that. One of the things I'm amazed by is talks about, about seniors. I was talking to you about seniors earlier. Um, in Illinois, we do not tax retirement income. We're one of only a couple of states that that's true. So if you're getting a pension, you're getting Social Security benefits, you're getting dividends from a, a retirement plan, an IRA retirement plan, the state does not tax you. I can't tell you how many senior citizens I represent. I, one time I was knocking on doors in Worth, and on one block I got into an argument with four different senior citizens who claimed they pay income taxes to the state. I said, no, you do not. I pay income taxes. I said, you pay income taxes to the federal government. You do not pay income taxes to the state. If you do, you need to fire your accountant and report him to the authorities because he is ripping you off. But it's amazing uh, how many senior citizens think they pay an income tax to the state when they do not. Um, so, you know, there's sometimes these, these gaps in, in public knowledge that, you know, really I mean, contribute to 
some of the problems we have in the state because people don't, you know, at their core understand taxation issues. So you mentioned that on your uh, tax bill you have mm -hmm. many, many um, individual taxing bodies. Isn't that really one of the big problems we have in Illinois is that we have one of the highest number of individual yes. taxing bodies? And what is the state legislator okay. doing about possibly consolidating some of sure. those? So yeah, it is true. We have the highest number of uh, local government uh, bodies in the country you know, com uh, compared to other states. Some of that is because of our size. There's some smaller states that have a higher per capita uh, number of local government bodies, but still it's a, it's a definite problem in the state. This year we passed a bill to allow for consolidation of one form of government, township government, by referendum. So voters in a township can vote to collapse that. Um, I forget the exact number of local government bodies we have in the state. I want to say it's like 7,000, something like that. Um, School districts really contribute to this. We have over 800 local school districts in the state of Illinois. Um, that really fuels it. Uh, some areas, including here in the, in the southwest suburbs, um, but it's, it's more pronounced really downstate. We have um, school districts with like boundaries, the same boundaries, but different uh, districts for K through 12 and high school. Um, to me, we should find a way to consolidate that and have one school district that will cut the bureaucracy. Only one superintendent, one level of support staff. Uh, that's what we call a unit district when it's combined K through 12. That's one way to cut that down. We have a lot, particularly downstate, single school districts where there's just one school in the district. Uh, they have a principal, a superintendent, a school board. There should be consolidation done when, when that happens. That, I think, is one of the best ways to do it, but there is gigantic opposition to that. Everyone says they want fewer government bodies, but then when you put a bill out there, as we have, okay, let's consolidate schools, the world catches on fire. No, consolidate someone else. Don't consolidate my school district. Um, so that, that's what makes it hard, but there's, def there's no reason for there to be mosquito abatement districts. The county health department should be able to do that, so we have legislation pending to do things like that. Um, I don't know why we need Cook County Forest Preserve District and Cook County government. There's two government bodies. Um, they can be consolidated. There's a lot of things we can and should do like that. In terms of making a difference and being able to uh, get your attention, how many emails or phone calls do you think it takes to be able to influence your elected official? Yeah, if I get one email from a constituent, I, I pay attention to that. You know, um, I will respond to it, um, explain what I'm thinking, or learn more. A lot of times, constituents bring issues to me that I have I know nothing about, and it gives me an opportunity uh, to learn about it. Um, you know, it's an interesting thing, and this kind of gets to uh, you know uh, more in depth when I talk to like uh, political science students, like, well, what's day in and day out like? Um, how uh, how do you consider your vote on an issue? You know, do you do it on your personal conscience? Do you, do, do you vote the way you think your constituents want you to vote? Do you think, do you vote based on what you think's best for the greater good of the state? Those are all things you have to balance. But, you know, I try to, as much as possible, vote the way I think my constituents want me to do. That's my number one, you know, uh, guidance. But that's hard to do. You know, I, I can't take a political opinion poll on every issue. So I have to do that based on my gut and based in part on um, what I get, what I hear from constituents. But that can be, that, that can kind of, that doesn't always give you an accurate position, you know, depending on the issue. Like for instance, I'll, I'll give you an issue, uh, an issue, guns, okay? Gun control measures. Um, if there's a gun control measure, like this year we had a thing to, to regulate uh, licensed gun shops. Most of the um, um, emails I got, like if I just kept a tally of well, how many are for this and how many are against this, I hear more from pro-gun people than I do from anti-gun people. I'm, you know, we'll speak in sweeping generalities here for a second. But I've seen actual public opinion polls that I've conducted when I've won, run for re-election of my constituents 
uh, attitudes about guns, and I know I represent, based on these scientific polls, an overwhelmingly pro-gun control district based on, on these polls. You would not know that by monitoring my emails. Um, and that's because people, um, you know, pro-Second Amendment, pro-gun rights people are very well organized and are very active in contacting uh, their elected representatives, also very well funded. It's similar to what I was talking to earlier about how we hear from seniors more than uh, other groups. That's one of the reasons why, you know, when there's these school shootings and people wonder, well, why aren't we, you know, why isn't Congress or local state legislatures, why aren't they passing bills to address this? Look at the public opinion polls. People are overwhelmingly for this. It's because of a small but well-educated, well-organized, relentless effort by a group. And, you know, sometimes a, a minority group um, can, because they're active, because they're engaged, um, will have an outsource uh, a, a louder voice than they should. And legislators, you know, you hear all this noise and fury coming from one direction, that's hard to ignore. Even if you did do a public opinion poll two years ago that says, oh, you know, no, they're in the minority. So, so you have to be, so getting to your initial question, you have to be, obviously I, I weigh what I hear from my constituents and, and apply to, to how I'm going to vote, but you have to be careful about it. You can't just say, oh, I got six emails telling me to vote yes on this bill and two to vote no, therefore I'm going to vote yes. You know, you have to, be, have to be careful about that. I just wanted to tie that in. I know we're out of time here. Uh, my class, American Government, we were scheduled to cover interest groups today and in so many ways, Senator Cunningham covered it way better than I ever would have. So you kind of see the role of participation, of getting organized, of contacting your elected officials. With that in mind, we still have time to register to vote. So if you guys are interested in finding out how to do that, please contact me. Uh, if you're interested in events like this, um, then uh, we have a democracy hour on Monday. Uh, this Monday we have an event in U111 called Ethical Dilemmas with Genetic Engineering and Artificial Intelligence. Um, I really want to thank Troy and Tara and the library for hosting today's event. And a special thanks to Senator Cunningham. If you guys thanks. could join me in. Thank you. Thanks. Really enjoyed it. Really good questions, too. Thanks. Well, thank you all for coming and asking those great questions. Appreciate it.